So, Skype is recording now. We are oh, on an episode of Heat Stories with Brian Dodd. Really, th this went really funnily because honestly, I had simply never heard anything about you. Got mm -hmm. in touch with uh, Miranda Brown, food historian, and she told me like, oh, you want to do a podcast? Okay, interesting. Oh, Chile in China, you need to do uh, to talk to Brian Dodd. He's <laughs> just writing or has just written a book about the Chile in China, which is what I'm currently still working on. So I was like, uh oh, what is happening now? <laughs> but well it looks like your book is going to be a lot more about the medicinal background and the history mine is going to be a lot more about modern uses flavors and varieties mm -hmm. so it should work out well but let's yeah. get to yeah. you a bit yeah i think so um so i'm coming at it definitely primarily as a historian but mm -hmm. I'm interested in cultural history. Uh, so my earlier work actually was on pilgrimage, uh, mm -hmm. pilgrimage to Mount Tai in Shandong. And then this project, it, it emerged very tangentially from my interest in, in popular religion in Mount Tai mm -hmm. in that the first pilgrimage season when I was on Mount Tai, which would have been 1995, okay. uh, there were the most popular souvenir were little glass red chili peppers. <laughs> and so okay. I was like, why? Why are these the most popular souvenir? And I still don't have a what I consider a really good answer to it. I, I've never gotten a super good explanation I think it's partly they're red and shiny, which is one of the things that caught the elite Chinese at the very beginning of the introduction. And then they're ch they were cheap. They were one kwai at the time. Mm -hmm. And then the guy selling them would personalize them. And he had this tiny little brush and he'd write their name on it and the year, at, you know, the date. And, the, and so that became... A really popular souvenir. I wondered in in Korea, the they're fairly explicit about explicit about connecting the shape of chili with the penis. <laughs> okay. So it's actually if there's a male baby, they would actually hang a bunch of chilies outside the door of the house to announce to the neighborhood that it was a boy, and <laughs> and you get. I've heard stories where Korean men don't want to go in the kitchen because that's where chilies get chopped up. <laughs> but I've never gotten anything that explicit from the Chinese. But mm -hmm. it does really look, you know, certainly a, a regular chili pepper and uncircumcised baby boy's penis. You could see a parallel, but I think it's just a little too embarrassing to talk about. Um and then there's just a really ancient uh, meaning for Jiao, which can mean, which is the La Jiao of Jiao, which can mean the summit of a mountain. But again, that seems seems very, very obscure. Um, so I'm not 100% sure why that happened, but that also combined with my eating Sichuan food in Beijing probably 20 years ago and wondering 
how the Chinese started eating this very different and often very intense flavor, um, how that happened and how it spread. And so that's what got me going on the project. Um, I initially hoped I could do this like intricate mapping of the spread of the chili and follow it up the Yangtze and the Yellow River and probably along the Grand Canal and up the Pearl River. And the the records just aren't that detailed. Um, I've used some GIS mapping software and played around with my data, but it just it you just get too many holes in the data. And part of the issue is that a lot of the elite weren't that interested in the chili pepper. Mm -hmm. And so I think any given county, there may have been thousands of peasants growing chilies, but the guys writing the local histories just didn't see it as important and didn't include it. And so you have this very, very spotty record um, which didn't allow that detailed mapping, but but there's still enough records after lots of going through things to to be able to paint a picture of of the sort of the early spread and early uses of the mm -hmm. chili in China. So, so uh, have you also have you also found what some of the people in China who looked into the local cassettes have found that it was quite definitely coming from the coasts and then up into Hunan and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, all of these crops, introduced crops, I mean, pretty much anywhere, would probably have multiple entry points mm -hmm. and multiple times and failures and successes. And the earliest record is from Hangzhou. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, obviously supports a central coast introduction point. Um, you know, the southeast coast would be more logical, just given mm -hmm. trade patterns in the late 16th century. But the the records we have don't support that as an initial entry point. You know, it may have been, but the central coast is the most likely earliest one. Um, and then up in the northeast from Korea is mm -hmm. another entry point. And then Taiwan via the Dutch is the a Dutch. third mm -hmm. entry point. Um, those are the ones where, you know, just sort of going through the sources that, that are supported by the sources. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> other, you know, other possible routes are the Silk Roads, but, but the sources don't support that. And, you know, one of the key things I'm using to support the multiple entry points, and we get this in a couple of the art Chinese articles about chili peppers too, is there's a uni unique name for chili pepper at the entry points. And so mm -hmm. in the Hangzhou area, it's Fanzhou, which is a foreign, basically foreign pepper. And then in the Northeast, it's Qinjiao, which is actually another mm -hmm. name for Sichuan pepper which is gets mm -hmm. confusing in the sources. And, <laughs> yeah. and then in Taiwan, it's Fanjiang, which is foreign ginger. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
you know, there are, of course, other names, but those are the primary names um, in those areas. And so that supports the argument that there's those three entry points. And, you know, you don't get an earlier record further west along the Silk Road than you mm -hmm. get to the east. And so that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, the sweet potato, another crop from the Americas, probably entered China over land from Burma into mm -hmm. Yunnan. And of course, that's another possible route for the chili pepper. But again, the records don't support that. There's earlier records in, um, you know, to the to the east of Yunnan. Um, so okay. it looks more likely that it's coming to Yunnan from like Hunan, Guizhou, that sort of area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things I was going to ask about, because this southern Burma trade is, mm, yeah, it could have been if nobody wrote anything about it, if Absolutely. it just isn't in the sources. Right, right. I mean, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. So I think probably the Silk Road route is not a route that happened, because you end up basically in Xinjiang, there's pretty good evidence that they got the chili from both directions from the east and the west and so uh -huh. that's that sort of makes it unlikely that it would have been moving east out of there oh, initially yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. to china um overland from burma and somewhere along fujian or guangdong coast i think it's quite possible there are introductions there we just don't it's not, there's no evidence for it in the written record um but but they just logically make sense that that would be a possibility mm -hmm. uh, for sure yeah I, I found the the things i've read from chinese sources well from a chinese article talking about the chinese sources about yunnan mm -hmm. quite interesting because they were talking about how at least one of the early records uh, could not be chili because they describe something which is perennial, but there is perennial chili in Yunnan. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, there's a, I, I disagree with some of the scholars for Yunnan. I think the earliest source, off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure it's 1736, is the one I think is the earliest source, and it's ambiguous. It's somewhat ambiguous, but I, don't, I think based on just internal evidence in that source that it is the chili pepper um they're using two different names for it um but none of them is one that is absolutely definitely you know so they're not saying la jiao or fan jiao they're saying chin jiao which could be sichuan pepper and la zi which is often chili pepper but could potentially be something else but mm -hmm. i think by putting those two together they're making they're trying to describe a new plant um mm -hmm. and they have sichuan pepper in their record under mm -hmm. hua jiao um so it's in there already and it wouldn't make a lot of sense for them to have it i mean the argument that people make is oh well there this 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 name is this plant and the second name is another plant and my argument is that well they're putting them together in, in under one plant 
description mm-hmm. in order to describe a new plant. And if they wanted to sub- describe two plants, they would have separated out. Yeah. Anyway, I, and I've also been able to find an earlier source, a, a next source for for Yunnan that mm-hmm. includes Fanjiao, so we know for sure it's pepper. It includes those other two names and that one, and that's still a lot earlier than than what that article was arguing for for mm-hmm. you. Um, yeah. so, some of the arguments seem to be getting quite funny. I mean, I, I'm not sure I need to ask you what you are going yeah, to think yeah. of it, but I was a bit amused because it seems to be popular to argue that the chili came to Sichuan relatively late because cookbooks mention it's late, but then what? you just have yeah. to... But then you just have to go to the PCN Dobanjiang producers who say that this Dobanjiang was invented like 1688 or something a long time before the sources now say that was definitely Chile that was there. Right, right. So um, Sichuan is around the same, the earliest records I have for Sichuan are around the same time for uh, Yunnan. So mid 18th century. it's true that cookbooks, you don't really have anything really until super late, like 1900 even. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dobanjang potentially doesn't include chilies in it until the 19th century, but I think that's hard to pin down for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely there in the mid-18th century. And my feeling is it's almost certainly brought into Sichuan by uh, immigrants. So at the end of the Qing, uh, I mean, sorry, end of the Ming, beginning of the Qing, there's a mass annihilation of population in Sichuan. Mm-hmm. And so early Qing, there's an active push for in-migration. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that come in there are from Hunan. And yeah they would have already been using peppers at that point, chilies at mm-hmm. that point. And so they almost certainly are the ones that brought the chili to Sichuan, or, or predominantly Hunanese, but probably also people from Hubei. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that seems like the likely introduction route. I mean, one of the things I've found frustrating with some of the Chinese sources is that even though many of them are trained in Marxist history, most of them don't see the peasants as the primary movers <laughs> of the chili pepper. And then they want it to be in the hands of merchants. Oh. And I just find that really strange on one hand and very frustrating on the other. Um, I mean, there, t- there does tend to be a, a, a bias of lots of modern scholars about the deep, deep knowledge base of peasants in the past. Mm-hmm. And and I really think they're the primary movers of chili, knowledge about chilies and planting of chilies. And that's part of the reason we don't have the detailed records because it's, mm-hmm. it's below the radar of the elite authors. And so probably, you know, they're growing them in their kitchen garden and then their relatives or neighbors come over and they're like, oh, what's that? That's cool. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, it's this new plant or it's a plant that Zhang 
family down the road gave us and yeah. it out. And so I think it's moving that way and that helps explain the lack of uh, record as well. Mm-hmm. And then you get records where it's very clear class difference, particularly in the 18th century, but, but some of the earlier ones too, where the author who's, you know, by definition, a member of the elite Mm-hmm. Is like, oh, well, there's this crop and the locals, which is often code for peasants, mm-hmm. uh, are growing two varieties. They're growing the uh, yang jiao, jiao the, the goat horn pepper, and the jixin jiao, the chicken heart pepper. So one long pointed pepper variety and one more round pepper mm-hmm. variety. And then he goes on, and then when you eat it, your tears flow and your nose runs, and it's just too hot. So the people that eat it are very, very few. And it's like, no, you don't get farmers growing two varieties of a crop that they're not using. And the very few that are using it are people like you, the elite, the elite authors. And so there's a number of sources like that where there's a fairly clear class divide with mm-hmm. the classes adopting it more quickly. Um, but as we move into the sort of late 18th, early 19th century, that that divide is, is lessening and it starts appearing in uh, recipe books and you start getting a much, much over the course of the 19th century, it becomes much more common to find it in the local, local gazettes. Um, than it was in the earlier periods. This is so fascinating. It is so <laughs> usual for the Chile to have such scant resource, uh, such yeah. scant records everywhere, and everywhere it's the same because it's like mm-hmm. it just seems like it's it grows too well, right? And I so it disappears into the background. Right, right. No, I think that's very true, and so you know. When I initially started the project, I was like, oh, I can look at import records. But of course, mm-hmm. there aren't any for the chili because, it, as you say, it grows so well. All you need is a few seeds. And so it never took off as a as a world trade commodity, um, you know, much to Columbus's chagrin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He had high hopes for it, but never took off for mm-hmm. him. Um, yeah, that- That was one of the funniest things when you look at the earliest sources like Columbus, like, oh, so much can be exported and it is so great, so much better than pepper. And then some of the next sources are like, so we went to India and they have the same pepper there. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It seems to have spread. I mean, I'm still I'm. I don't know if you know the blueberry, this Tibetan medicinal tanker. I no, I don't know that one. No, uh, I, I have a fascination with that because at least one, well, one version of it looks like it includes something which is a chili pepper plant and it has a Tibetan name, which is at least now used for chili. I mm-hmm. found another version which actually mm, does not look in the painting like a chili. The description is also a bit like, no, they don't quite seem to know what it is, but mm-hmm. maybe. And somehow the chili seems to have spread around the Tihuas Road, 
but sure. nobody yeah. really knows anything about it. Yeah, yeah, I haven't. I would love to do some more on that. I haven't done anything for my research. I'm focusing on, you know, what we can call inner inner China um, mm -hmm. and not looking at Tibet or uh, Xinjiang. Um, so, yeah, it would be really interesting. I just don't, given how scant the records are for the other areas, I think it, it's going to be even harder for looking at that sort of a, a route but it it would make sense um you know one of the things that's beneficial for the tibetans with the tea are the vitamins the tea has and so mm -hmm. the same would be true and and in, for some of the vitamins even better with the chili, the chili. Yeah. yeah yeah but it was funny i mean i went up the, up uh, Dali, Lijian, Xiangelila, uh, and a little bit further, and it's like you ask people about Chile, and typically it's like, um, yeah, we don't really grow it, we don't really have it, our food is not really spicy, and then you go on to markets and into restaurants and places <laughs> like that, and it's like, there is a lot of Chile, it's not uh -huh. so spicy or not this... What? What? thing which people talk about but it is definitely there right right and i think they're you know they're contrasting it with the stereotypes of sichuan and because mm -hmm. um, i mean now i i do think i mean one of the things this most recent book by a chinese author about chilies that i do agree with he spends a lot of time on the last 30 years mm -hmm. and that there's been a, a upsurge in chili use and i oh, do yeah. agree with that um you know when i was in beijing in the mid 90s you did not see chili peppers in the market i mean you didn't see a lot there's a lot now not all that mm -hmm. market um you know the greenhouses came mm. after that and so but now you go to a market in beijing and there's maybe eight varieties of chilies um mm -hmm. but i do think you know, I've got a number of Chinese friends that talk about a generational divide as well, where it's the younger people that are more open to chilies, even in the non-traditionally non-chili eating areas. Mm -hmm. And they'll talk about, oh, yeah, my parents don't eat spicy, but I do. Um, <laughs> so I do think that's a more recent trend. And it's it's sort of a combination of Chinese traveling more within China. Mm -hmm and that ability to have all those greenhouses growing the fresh vegetables so mm -hmm. yeah. although i find it also quite funny you had mentioned Sichuan restaurants in beijing mm -hmm. and i lived in beijing for a little bit for like half a year a few years back and went to a Sichuan restaurant a lot but found <laughs> and fortunately had somebody in Chengdu also confirmed that that the Sichuan restaurants in Beijing, even not just abroad, are considerably spicier usually. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the spiciest dishes I've ever eaten. I mean, actually, it was too spicy for me to eat. Was a a Guizhou dish in Beijing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the one with that's just all chilies <laughs> with a tiny <laughs> bit of meat in the middle. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I have been in a bit of trouble since I've been living in Chongqing now, usually, and so I'm so used to another level of mala again, so I'm oh, a bit okay. afraid to find everything not so spicy anymore because of that. 
but mm, yeah, all the area, there is a lot of pretty spicy things and mm, all different though. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do really like the mala combination, which, I mean, they do use it. I mean, it's predominantly seen as a Sichuan element, but Mm -hmm. it's definitely used a fair amount in Yunnan as well. But this is one of the things I'm playing with in in terms, I've done a little bit in my book, but want to do a little more on, is the chili pepper has definitely reduced the amount of hua jiao that's that's consumed in China. Um, Uh There used to be a lot more of it all over the country. Um, And over, you know, since the introduction of the chili, that usage has declined. Um, and there's been a little bit of a battle between those two spices, um, although obviously it's still extremely prevalent in, in Sichuan. Um, mm-hmm. But the combination typically is used rather than just the ma alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I don't know. I'm I'm interested in sort of thinking a little bit about that displacement and replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's definitely in the in the historical record the chili is partly getting adopted by people as a substitute for other mm-hmm. flavorings. Um, you know, the most logical one is black pepper, which of course is mm-hmm. imported and therefore expensive. So you can grow the chili essentially for free, except for your labor, um, and then. It also gets used as a substitute for Sichuan pepper, um, Mm -hmm. which, you know, most people aren't growing. Most people are buying it. So chili would be a little cheaper. It's not going to be a lot. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be like for the difference between uh, black pepper and chili pepper. And and those ones make sense. There's a logical substitution because they're all within that pungent category for the Chinese flavoring system. But it mm-hmm. also got used a lot for substitution for salt, which of mm-hmm. course different flavor category, but with the government price controls and it, you know it, there's a monopoly, but there's also a black market for salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the price for salt is higher than a vegetable you can grow in your own garden. Mm-hmm. And at the very end of the Ming in the whole chaos that's happening there's also a lot of unsettlement in the salt industry and there's mm-hmm. actually a, a, some fairly high price increases of salt right around the time when the chili pepper is becoming more prevalent and more popular and i think that probably helped helped its rise in, in, okay. in more widespread um you know there's no way you can find a direct any, any direct source that says that except that you do find a number of sources that talk about it as a substitute for salt uh, and it seems to be primarily an economic i mean you know the main thing there is economic obviously it can't 100 percent replace salt because we need mm-hmm. some, but the amount we need biologically is much less than the amount that people put in their food uh, and so mm-hmm. chili is getting substituted for that 
portion that's above the amount that that people would need for for survival. Um, ah, okay. Yeah, that's good thinking. I've I've been wondering. On the one hand, I heard so much from Guizhou of yeah, they don't have any salt, so they use the chili. I was like, but it's not the same thing. I don't believe it. And yeah, on the yeah. other hand, uh, I have been wondering because Guizhou very often uses hula chow, this burnt chili. And some of the plant ashes plus the burnt chili might actually deliver a bit of salt, Why? some sure. minerals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that makes sense. Um, you're right, the substitute isn't exactly the same. And there's actually one of the, actually a, a Guizhou source where the author is complaining that this isn't a direct substitution. It's just to trick people. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, I mean, there is a, a level of that, and it makes sense since it's a different, you know, from his perspective, it's a different category of mm -hmm. flavoring. Um, but I do think, you know, you get you can get salt in a lot of different ways without mm -hmm. directly adding it. And of course, if you're using any sort of soy sauce, you're getting a fair amount of <laughs> salt. So um, uh -huh. the records, you know, I've one of the m more recent articles that I've read, well, actually, it's this new book um, mm -hmm. that he argues that Guajo is the first place chilies are used as a flavoring. And I disagree with that. Um, I've got sources from much earlier um, than that that are definitely not from Guajo. And yes, there are early sources, fairly early sources from Guajo, but they're not the earliest. Um, but they do talk about the earliest Guajo sources are emphasizing that substitution for salt. Um, and they tend to emphasize uh, um, minorities using it particularly. And I think part of what's going on there is they tend to be, you know, they've been pushed out of the you know, Guajo's not super urban yet, but <laughs> the somewhat more urban areas. Uh, the minorities have mostly been pushed out. They're pushed up into the mountains. Um, and it's true that Guizhou does not, is one of the few places in China that was not actually producing salt. And so their salt has to be imported. And the most, it's going to be harder and more expensive to get it up into the mountains. And so it makes sense that that would be a point where they're using chilies more. But it, doesn't make sense that that's the first place they use chilies because it has to have gotten there and it's not <laughs> yeah. and again i i pushing back against the idea that it's moving via merchants i there's no record of that i think it's moving via farmers giving a few seeds to their neighbors and so yes when the salt price goes way up in the late Ming, it makes sense that those remotely located Guizhou minorities need something cheaper to flavor their food, and they're not trading. It would make sense for them to trade for it because the reason they're avoiding salt is because they have to trade for it. So they need yeah. to be growing themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And probably somebody's writing about it being used because it is like escaping the salt taxation, the salt prices, and right, that right. sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, which is, I think, one of the reasons also that this that early source for Guizhou is by the governor. So he has a vested interest in supporting mm-hmm. the, the salt trade. Um, so so I think that's one of the reasons why he's like, oh, it deceives the the people's tongues. Rather, you know, it's not a real flavor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a kind of cool one. I mean, I, I, I did not see so much from China about this, but even in the few sources that I know, there are mentions of like, yeah, no, it was just something pretty that they grew in their gardens. And it's like, yeah, it seems like everywhere that the Chile went outside of the Americas, this is at least part of the story. I've certainly heard it from Europe. It's like, yeah, but at the same time, you have a few sources which are like, everybody here grows it, everybody uses it. People just don't want to talk about it because it's just what the peasants do. Right, right, exactly. And it's not like... You know, one of the big differences between it and the uh, other crops from the Americas, so the you know sweet potato and maize and the peanut, um, the white potato, those are all really high caloric uh, mm-hmm. vegetables, and those ones actively are promoted by the state and by the elite, you know, for the peasants <laughs> to grow for famine relief. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are also um, some of them will grow in soil that wouldn't support the more traditional, particularly the rice rice crops. Um, but you know there isn't any that that's not true for the chili pepper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons for the lack of elite sources is because they're they're concentrating their energies on those high caloric ones, or of course also tobacco, which is a <laughs> which is a cash crop. Um, and they're very interested in that also. Um, so there's lots of my essay on the sweet potato. There are dozens of them, whereas there are no my essay on the chili pepper. Um, mm-hmm. The sources are just, yeah, there's a big difference in the way the elite are approaching those different crops. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's quite funny because typically the chili somehow is associated with those high caloric things because they tend to be, yeah, carbohydrates, but not much flavor. So right, people put right. chili pepper on them. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, you definitely, they're good for flavoring all those new starchy uh, foods. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I, I keep thinking back of the first time I discovered that actually there was this talk about the chili or at least about Hunan food in general but I mean that is mainly with chili mm-hmm. as the, uh, yeah yeah the vegetable or the dishes to get more rice down <laughs> right 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 yeah yeah <laughs> that was quite a funny one and I actually once found somebody talking about this idea existing in France or someplace like that of like very highly flavorful things to eat more bread or to get the bread down but of course i can't find that anymore yeah okay yeah yeah <laughs> dip it in sauce who it was. gravy or something right yeah yeah you you were in your book also looking at uh, medicinal things yes so i mean so the, you know interestingly the, the chili of course is not used contemporarily in Chinese traditional medicine formulas. Mm -hmm. 
most practitioners see it as too strong and overpowering, but there's a lot of um, sort of more folk remedies with the chili pepper at the, you know, around the point of introduction. Um, so the earliest medical source is 1621, which is quite early because the earliest mm -hmm. written source is 1591. Um, and that earliest medical source is also the earliest source that I found where it explicitly talks about the chili as a flavoring in food as well. Huh. Um, and so one of my arguments is that the full integration of the chili into Chinese culture required the integration of it into the traditional medicine system. So the, the Chinese needed to know, I mean, it's not hard to figure out that it has heating characteristics, um, but you know, it needs to be explicitly categorized as having heating characteristics. It needs to be categorized within the five flavors you know obviously that works both for cooking as well as in the medicine system um, and then you know you get both uh, uses of it that are that are following those traditional you know ways that you would use similarly use a pungent and heating herb or, or fruit or whatever you can mm -hmm. use the chili pepper for that but there's also a great deal of empirical observation, which I think, of course, is coming from its being used initially as a flavoring. But then they're observing these effects of it, which then carries over into medicine. And then, of course, that goes back and forth between mm -hmm. them. So there's all sorts of interesting things. I mean, some of them are clearly picking up on its antiseptic qualities. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of early sources from Trenjo and Fujian, which talk about it as eliminating fish poisoning. Uh, okay. And then uh, it gets used as an anti-malarial, uh, mm -hmm. both as a prophylactic and as a treatment after the disease is caught. Mm -hmm. um, it's apparently really good for hemorrhoids. <laughs> Um, hmm. the, one, the one source talks about that treatment being as easy as making water from snow. So apparently it works very well. Okay. <laughs> I wonder about the form of application they use yeah, for that. Well, it's definitely taken through the mouth rather than, uh, <laughs> than otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, for the for the medical uses, it's definitely the spicier varieties that they're looking for, which is interesting because, you know, you look at any sort of contemporary modern biomedical use of capsaicin, it's definitely pulling it as you know, sort of as much of that as they can uh, mm -hmm. for the various sorts of things that it's used for. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, it's, it's used, there's these anecdotal uses of it as a uh, helps with toothaches, mm -hmm. um, which I, you know, maybe it, I don't know that it's any better than like the Sichuan pepper. <laughs> that, that's good. Mm -hmm. for yeah, too. True, true. <laughs> but I mean, there are ways in which it is circumventing some of the nerve channels. Um, yeah, I mean, so, to me, this is 
this is quite funny because uh, there is a um, Aztec codex. I think that one was oh, the Codex yeah. Mendoza, which actually also has a painting and has this description what? of chili and alum salt and salt being used against toothache. Right, right. Yeah. So I think, you know, this thing is, you know, and I have no idea if any of this knowledge is coming with the chilies or if it's all empirical. It seems probably more, more likely it's empirical. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that, again, you know, wasn't, I was hoping I could trace, you know, the movement of the Chile around Africa into Asia or across the Pacific into Asia. And that also turned out to be uh, not something you can do. And, mm -hmm. and there again, I think what's happened is that it's members of the ship, ship's crews are bringing the chili along as food as flavoring for their food mm -hmm. and then either intentionally or accidentally spreading the seeds when they get to a, a port somewhere and yeah. then once it's there it's going to become more intentional in in terms of its spread mm -hmm. but that seems to be the most likely route for that you know since it definitely was not being you know, they weren't loading bales of chili, hot <laughs> cocoa, and, and sailing them across to Manila. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't know. I, I keep wondering if some of the Xiaomila in Yunnan isn't maybe even one which was for a while spread by birds. Yeah. Like yeah. a wild chili. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and oh, they're funny things. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've, one of the interesting things I discovered reading some modern uh, biology things is just the the theories in terms of the mechanism, you know, the why the plant evolved to have capsaicin. And mm -hmm. there's sort of two, you've probably read this, but two major explanations. Um, one is its antimicrobial function, in particular antifungal function mm -hmm. for growing in that those tropical areas of particularly Central America. Um, but the other is the, you know, the, to prevent animals from destroying the seeds. Mm -hmm. And so birds are not susceptible to capsaicin. So they can just chow down on it, no problem. Mm -hmm. But the seeds remain, most of the seeds remain viable afterwards. Whereas little rodents will chew up the seeds, seeds yeah, and yeah. they're not viable, and therefore that's the mammals, small mammals is the target for mm -hmm. capsaicin, which is, that's something I learned in the in the process of my research, which I found yeah, yeah, yeah. very fascinating, even though it doesn't directly impact what's happening in China. <laughs> yeah, although it was funny in that regard that uh, researchers found this one tree shrew, this tupaya or something in China, which apparently uh, has evolved to also not feel the capsaicin oh, okay. burn. And oh, wow. it's, okay. huh. 
it, it's <laughs> actually it, yeah. because it eats some some pepper species, some sort of pepper, but okay. this one produces something which is like capsaicin, so it also does not feel capsaicin burning. Okay, interesting. Well, that's interesting. Okay, I hadn't heard of that. Okay. Cool. <laughs> it's it's just to me it was a bit annoying because articles about it were all like so there is another animal besides humans which actually likes the burn of peppers and that's not <laughs> what it is because right, right. this animal is like birds it just does not feel it whereas we right, feel right. it a lot but we just right, like right. it right right yeah exactly yeah so yeah right yeah it is different yeah it's not I love the burn and it's going to go in and, and look for the spiciest pepper on the planet <laughs> yeah but i mean some of those connections are really really strange i found a herbarium specimen once at the natural history museum here looking actually for shakers capsicum sinense oh okay yeah and there was one from like the one well circumnavigation of the globe which an austrian expedition did or something a bit later maybe something like that mm -hmm. and there was this one herbarium specimen was of capsicum of chili pepper from one of the polynesian samoan i think islands mm -hmm. and then it had a note on it an ethnobotanical note, which are really rare, unfortunately, which right. was like, uh, this chili grows wild in the coconut plantations and the Chinese coolies eat it in all of their food. Okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that brings together so many things, but I'm still wondering about how this all goes together. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, was it there already when they got there or did they bring it or, yeah, who knows? Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Did it maybe come with the uh, Manila galleons or something right. like that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how did Chinese coolies get to Samoa sometime in, I don't know when it was again, but something like 1880 maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> very odd relations. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, yeah, that's... That's somehow a lot of the story of the chili, that it's like so obvious that it gets forgotten, that it gets overlooked. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Right, right. Yeah, so well, I mean, medicinally, yeah, the chili really doesn't make it into the modern sort of pharmacy for traditional Chinese medicine. Mm -hmm. But of course it is, you know... It, perceived in Hunan and Sichuan as, you know, that important moisture expeller that that's mm -hmm. sort of perceived as being necessary for living in those humid climates. And I always wonder, well, why? I mean, Guangzhou is awfully humid, too, but they don't use it for that. And I don't know, that's something I, I mean, I sort of have some answers, but not really a very complete answer for it. And I think a lot of it depends just on the, um, you know, there's been a fair amount of work in terms of Chinese traditional medicine as being, having a very regional aspect to it. And people from different regions are emphasizing different sorts of treatments depending on the climate and that that whatnot so i think there's that element and you know there is a difference in terms of that more continental inland climate versus the coastal climate mm -hmm. 
<laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of the things which got me to the Chile in China because like one of the first times I was in China, I just visited actually a part of well, it's not yet Guizhou, it's still Guangxi, those rice terraces. Mm, and right, right, they, yeah. A very similar situation to what you described that it was well in that case it was also during winter time so it was cold and mm -hmm. on the bus out there the tour guide was like yes and you will see a lot of chili being sold there because the people need to have the chili because otherwise in those cold and humid wet mountains you couldn't survive the winters right, like, right. Mm -hmm. what like yeah <laughs> They clearly uh, survived before the chili was introduced. Yeah, but I mean, it was. Um, but I suspect it, they were using some other pungent flavoring that they felt mm -hmm. like was doing the same thing. Uh, yeah, it's it's the same areas where they have at least two different other pungent things before. Sure, sure, yeah. And. And to me, it was really interesting because it was around the time when the research came out, which was all like the chili spread through the tropics so much because in the tropics you need its antimicrobial effect in combination with meat to protect yourself. Then mm -hmm. it's like, mm, yeah, but they say in the summer you don't really need it. You need it in the winter when it gets foggy and cold. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's true. So they emphasize it in, in sort of year-round but I think you're right. Even that that cold clamminess needs both the heat and then the water expelling characteristics of the mm. of the chili. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I better get back to my writing, and I'm really okay. curious about your book. It's it's so fascinating. It's like somehow there's still not much being said about the chili in China and when then it's about the cooking and oftentimes kind of um, well people repeating a lot of the same things which aren't necessarily too good. And mm -hmm. at the same time, something seems to be happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's the sort of convergence of interest in the chili pepper. Yeah, it's good. Mm -hmm. All right, I'll stop the recording here. Thank you very much. Yes, great to chat with you.